before we before we actually begin, let me uh, lead us in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would help us to understand your word today, Lord. Understand your command. Understand what it is that the scripture tells us, especially about how we are to worship and how we're not to worship you. So would you help us this morning to understand you better? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, would somebody like to read our uh, pa- scripture passage at the very top of that sheet from Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6 this morning? All right, John's doing it. Sure. Uh, you, shall not make your, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the inequity of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right. Thank you, John. So uh, last week we talked about the positive side of the second commandment. And what we talked about was the fact that God has the right to tell us how it is that he wants to be worshipped. Uh, he has the right to tell us uh, how the gathered church ought to be observing their worship of him. And uh, he does tell us certainly ways that he is not to be worshipped, but we sort of positively spent time talking about what it is that does please God. What is it that he calls us to? And we talked about the different elements of, of worship, and we showed biblically why we do what we do on Sundays in church. We talked about the reading of Scripture We talked about the preaching of Scripture. We talked about the praying of Scripture, the singing of Scripture, and the seeing of Scripture. And that last one's a little less clear, but it's the sacraments. And so, you know, I tried to make the case that all of those things are actually taught and instructed for us to do in the Bible. And so we don't get to worship God according to our own plans, our own ideas, our own notions, but instead we're restricted in some sense by how has God told us to do this. And then that sort of leads us to the the plain way that our text actually reads this morning. I mean, if we admit it, it's you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, uh, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. So the, the, the way that the command is stated is stated in a negative way. But I always think it's helpful for us to look at the positive side of it first. Uh, But now we don't have to dance around that negative side of the command. What is he telling us not to do this week? We can sort of jump in whole hog and actually ask, what is it that God wants us to not do when we worship? And in particular, why does he have such a focus on this idea of images and not making images and not making idols? Um, And I think the best place to begin is to start with the larger catechism, to begin there and then sort of move outward from that. Because remember, the catechism is not scripture. The catechism is just a summary. What our church says is a summary, and what I believe is a summary of what the Bible teaches. So when we, when we read the catechism, we're reading just a sort of a boiled down, and actually in this case almost opened up like an accordion, sort of an understanding of what the Bible says about this subject. So uh, I need a volunteer... On your sheet, you should see WLC, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 109. Do I have a brave volunteer, long-winded volunteer, willing to read all of Westminster Confession 109? All right, Grant. What are the sins forbidden in the Second Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Second Commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself, tolerating a false religion, the making of any representation of God of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature. Whatsoever, all worshiping of it or God in it or by it, the making of any representation of famed deities and all worship of them or service belonging to them, all superstitious devices corrupting the worship of God, 
adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taking up of ourselves or received by tradition from others. Though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense, whatsoever, simony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing the worship and ordinances which God has appointed. I suspect most of those phrases and terms you probably have some familiarity with. The one that you might not is simony. Uh, anyone know what simony is? I mean, maybe Robert could tell us. Anybody else? Simony is basically purchasing a church office. Um, it used to be that, uh, yeah, you, you would uh, people in the church would, would have wealthy family, and they could be appointed to... Um, you know, it used to be that the church would actually put the pastor in place rather than the local congregation, and maybe the family would pay a lot of money, and their son would get the best pulpit or something like that in town. And so that's sort of the idea of the way simony at least looked like when this was, would have been written. Um, but it goes back to Simon Magus. Remember, he wanted to purchase the gift of God. He wanted to purchase spiritual blessings. So that's where that one comes from. The reason I'm mentioning that is because I'm not going to talk about it. And so, so I thought, well, why not explain at least that one line and so that we understand it a little bit. But if we look, um, when we, to begin with, just like we saw last week, one of the major prohibitions of the second commandment is this idea that we're not allowed to worship God in our own way, the way that we sort of want to worship, but rather we need to worship the way that he says and one of the starkest moments in all of the Old Testament is actually uh, the, the death of Nadab and Abihu. Um, it's in Leviticus chapter 10. Did I put that passage on your sheet? Leviticus chapter 10. Would somebody be willing to read those three verses? Nadab and Abihu. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid their incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. All right. Thank you, Willie Ray. Um, so one thing I don't want to do is get caught up in what this fire was, where it came from, how they made it, what was so bad about it. The, the, the word that gets used in the text is a very specific word. It's the word unauthorized. And unauthorized is not the same thing as forbidden, necessarily. Because unauthorized doesn't mean it was specifically spoken against. It means it wasn't spoken for. It means it wasn't something that they were told to do. Whatever this fire was that they used, whether it was uh, some kind of alcohol or whether it was uh, some different substance, whatever it was, they decided to use as a fuel on this fire something that wasn't allowed and it was unauthorized. And so the principle here is that, is that, we, is that uh, is what we see with the second commandment. Remember, the first commandment is worship God, and the second commandment is we must do it his way. And so the question isn't whether we should worship him. The question is, will we worship him his way, or will we worship him in an unauthorized way? And that's what this command is saying. Don't, don't worship God in an unauthorized way. And last week, I sort of went through, tried to methodically show all the elements of the worship that we do here is commanded in Scripture. And the other side of this, though, is that we're not supposed to include things that are forbidden. So that's sort of the other side of that coin. Um, And especially this passage, this verse in Exodus, really focuses on this idea of images. God is very concerned about images, what they do to our minds, what they do to our perception of him, and especially how they invade his glory and how they steal his glory. So I'm going to sort of go step by step um, through from sort of like most severe down to the less severe. Uh, Maybe that'll make sense. Maybe it won't by the time we're done. But one of the first things that uh, is touched on here is this idea of worship of images, which I don't think we struggle much with, I'm going to be honest. We as Presbyterians uh, don't tend to do that. We don't tend to... uh, uh, use images in worship. Uh, we tend not to really have images around. 
If you go into the sanctuary, uh, the closest thing you get to an image is sort of the symbolic image of the dove. You get the, uh, you get the cross, you get some of the uh, other symbolism of the stained glass window up above. But one thing you won't find is any attempt to sort of depict God. Um, and, pres- and so we tend not to use those to worship. Uh, we tend not to have that problem. But I'll tell you, uh, give you some examples of where that is an issue. If you go into a Greek Orthodox church, I had a friend just this week, he uh, texted me and said, I went to a Greek Orthodox church this week just to visit it, and every single corner of the room was just filled with images. Uh, stained glass windows depicting either the saints or images of Jesus. Uh, this is a pretty typical thing. And so they would worship, and when they worship, they worship with their eyes open. They look at the images. They use the images to, to help them worship. They actually say, well, I look at this saint, I think of what this saint represents. And if you go to the church councils, uh, especially the later church, church councils, you actually find them commanding it. The 25th session of the Council of Trent, if you remember, the Council of Trent was the council that met and they, they anathematized, they cursed the gospel. They said, if you believe the gospel, you are accursed, you are thrown out. Um, that's sort of the council where the Roman Catholic Church no longer became a church. That's my take on Roman Catholicism anyway. And, uh, uh, but they also said, not only are you allowed to worship images, you are commanded to worship images. Um, later on, they started to realize this idea of commanding someone to worship an image may be a problem because they still have Exodus chapter 20 in their Bibles. And so what they said was, we honor the images of the saints, but we don't worship the images of the saints. Uh, We honor the images of Christ, but we don't worship the images of Christ. And and then they started saying, well, look, this this, this image is really just a sign. That's all it really is. And a sign always points to something other than itself. So all these are really doing is helping us to honor the person that the image represents, which sounds may be okay, except for the fact that they still do all the same things toward the images that you would do toward the one that the image represents. They remove their hats in deep reverence when they stand before an image, either of God or of one of the saints. Um, They lay themselves down. They bow down before them. They kiss the feet of the idols. Um, they, They do these things that they would do if they were in front of Jesus himself. And so they, and they'll recite prayers in front of it. They'll open their eyes, they'll look at the statue, and they'll say their prayers. You know, they, in other words, they're bowing down, they're praying, and they're offering something that cannot be distinguished from worship to the idols. And so, you know, they, they do all of these things, and yet it says in the text, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Um, who was it we were, I was just talking to? We know somebody. Actually, I know who it is, but I don't want to say who it is. We know somebody who actually has a cleaning job, and they clean a Catholic church. And one of the things they do is they have this very special way that they sort of dispose of uh, communion bread because they have sort of uh, an idolatrous view of the communion bread, right? They think it's Jesus' body, so they don't want to just throw it out. Uh, they think it's actually his blood, so you don't just pour that down the sink. Um, and so there's all sorts of things that, you know, they, they look at it as more than just the thing that's symbolized. They actually treat it as the thing itself. And the same thing goes, I think, for the idols, the images, the statues. Um, now, I suspect there's probably nobody in this room, unless you're a recovering Roman Catholic, who has lately been bowing down to worshiping statues. So I don't think this is a very controversial point for me to make. <laughs> don't worship images. Uh, <laughs> But the, the command, any questions about that? Um, however, I want to go a little bit deeper into it, though. Let's go a little bit deeper into an area where I suspect some of us might not agree. And that is this commandment not only prohibits us from worshiping images, but it actually prohibits us from making any kind of image of God. Um, just a lot, one of the lines in the larger catechism, which you've still got in front of you, one of the things that's forbidden is the making any representation of God, of all or of any of the three persons, either, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature. Um, before we actually talk about the command, let's just talk sort of 
about why this command would exist. Why would it be that God would have a problem with us making an image of him uh, in whatever form it might be? One of the passages I have in your, in your, on your paper is Isaiah 40, verse 8. And that verse says, To whom will you liken God? I think I typoed and didn't uppercase God. To whom will you liken God, or what will you compare him to? So God asks this rhetorical question, and the answer is there's literally nothing we could compare God to. Uh, there's no, literally nothing we could use to depict him. There's nothing that we could do to see what he looks like, or write it down, or uh, sort of reenact it. There's nothing out there in creation that we could use to do that. Um, you know, not even a flash of light. Sometimes we'll do like a, a sunset or something like that, and we'll say, well, there's maybe we can use this to represent God. But a flash of light doesn't do the job. Um, you know, a hand reaching down out of a cloud doesn't really do the job. Uh, depicting a, a grandpa with a beard uh, doesn't do the job. Um, none of the things that I think people sometimes maybe try to do to depict God even gets remotely close to God because God is undepictable. There's just no, there's no way to know what he looks like or to see what he looks like or to make something that could depict his presence. Um, another reason I think why he gives this command is that images of God dishonor him. If you look at Romans one twenty three, I have that down on, on your paper also. Romans one twenty three, Paul is sort of talking about the idolatry that human beings are sort of prone to and one of the things he says is that people change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made to like to corrupt, corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And so one of the things he says is that human beings have a long history of sort of taking an, uh, some kind of image of a created thing and saying, this is God. Not because they think this idol is God, but because they want to worship God through the image. They need some physical, they just, people just yearn for some physical point of contact. Uh, and we sort of just lean that way. And Paul recognizes it. He says people have been doing this for ages. And so uh, when we think of God as if he's like a created thing, Paul says, what are we doing? We're exchanging his glory for a lesser glory. We're actually settling for something less than what God is when we do that. Um, another reason I think why physical images are a problem is that it, it can take the service that we owe to God, which is a spiritual service, and it can actually make it into a physical service. So uh, we actually, instead of giving God our spiritual worship, instead of giving him our heart, instead of giving him our soul, we can actually focus more on outward shows uh, of uh, affection for God than inward shows. So, for example, one of the complaints Luther had was that in his day, people would uh, go and look at the images of the saints. They would go and look at relics, and they would think to themselves, this is the milk of the Virgin Mary, the very Virgin Mary who nursed Jesus. How much closer can you get to, to Jesus than this? And they would and they would bow down and they would focus on this relic or they would look at the skull of John the Baptist and say, he was so close to Jesus. And so their focus and their energy ends up being on John the Baptist and on his physical presence somewhere. And they would do the same thing with Jesus. If Jesus' body hadn't been raised, I think one of the great uh, shows of love that God gave to us is not just the resurrection, but the fact that he didn't leave a physical body of Jesus behind. Can you imagine, can you imagine the way people would fight over, clamor over, focus on, obsess over if Jesus' physical body was still here on earth and we were able to sort of clamor around him, uh, the sort of madness that would result in. Uh, he loves us and he knows that these things are hang-ups for us. And so he protects us from those things. But the thing we like about physical objects is they're easier to comprehend. They're easier to wrap our heads around. Um... They're easier to appreciate than something spiritual that we can't see at all. Um, another reason, and you've got this in your text, is from Deuteronomy 4.15. God says images have a way of corrupting us. They have a way of changing the way we think, changing the way we act, changing the way that we worship God. 
Uh, would somebody read those two verses, verses 15 and 16 of Deuteronomy 4? Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at, at Horeb. Out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. So, um, so actually, he, he doesn't just say, don't just make an animal, but he also says, don't even make an image of a human being. Um, he says, there's a reason why you couldn't see me on the mountain. There's a reason you looked at the mountain and all you saw was flame, and you couldn't see a presence, you couldn't see an image, you couldn't see anything. And, and he says, the reason is because if you saw something, then you would have come down and you would have made an image of that thing that you saw, and he says that when you made that image, you would have acted corruptly. You would have corrupted yourselves. You would have wrecked yourselves. You would have ruined yourselves, in other words. And so he says, you know, making or purchasing or having images of God around has a corrupting influence. It has a way of drawing us away from knowing the true God. And instead, we start to really know these images really well. And so God loves us. He doesn't want us to be corrupted. And, and he, so he forbids us from making any images that are intended to be images of God. Um, what I'm trying to do with these verses, with these four points, I guess, is just try to get underneath of the command and ask the question, why would it be a problem? Why would it be a problem for us to have images of God at all? Because, you know, on the one hand, it's fine for us to say, God says, don't make an image of him and let that be that. But I think it's healthy for us to be able to understand God has his reasons why. Uh, he does this because he loves us. He does this because he wants to protect our souls. He wants to protect our hearts so that we don't worship him in a false way. Uh, <clears throat> now, here's the part of the command, especially the larger catechism. If you go to the cat larger catechism, there is one line. And maybe, maybe it stood out to you as well that really seems like, wow, is it really that? Is he really going to go that deep? This idea of we can't even make an image of God in our minds. Does anybody want to fess up to thinking that was a weird line or that they, they don't like that one? You don't know. You're out of the spirit. How can you do that? Yeah, how could you? How, how can you draw a picture of the spirit? Yeah, then you're, so even in your mind, you're saying, hey, maybe this isn't something you can actually do. Um, I have very close conservative friends in Presbyterianism, and when they go before the Presbyteries and they get examined, one of the things the Presbytery does is they'll say, is there anything in, the, in our Presbyterian form of government that you disagree with? And I, have a, I know a few guys who will go forward and they'll say, I don't think it's possible to not make an image of God in our mind. So, so they will actually take exception with this line and they'll say, because of that, I think that the confession goes too far. They'll say, I think that the confession is too harsh here because we can't resist making an image of God. As soon as you say the word God, people start having ideas flash through their brains and they have something that they start picturing, whether, for good, whether it's right or wrong. And so their, their argument is that there's some misunderstanding here that the confession is, is wrong or mistaken on this point. And, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a defense right now of the idea of not making images even of God in our minds. And... Uh, the first thing I would say is this. Just because we feel like we can't keep one of the commandments doesn't mean that's not what the command is saying. So um, if we say, well, you know, the command says do not murder, but we know Jesus says don't even hate your neighbor. It doesn't follow from that that because I've never not hated my neighbor, because I've never been able to avoid that, that uh, it's therefore okay for me to hate my neighbor. All right. That doesn't nullify the command. All it means is I'm really messed up. Uh, in the same way, if, if we can't keep the command that says don't make an image of God even in your mind, that still doesn't mean that the command is wrong. That still doesn't mean that it's wrong, that it's okay for us to make images in our minds because we just can't help it. So that would, I don't think that's a very good way for us to argue. And uh, whenever any of my brothers tell me that they take this exception, I try to press back on them with this. Um, but in the end, a lot of guys just say, this is just too strict. It's just too strict. You, 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 put, a, a, you put something on people's shoulders that they can't possibly bear. And, and I would say, though, 
but the command is there to help us, to keep us from settling for images in our minds. Um, if you've ever tried in your mind to depict God as a grandfather figure or as a hand reaching down or as a flash of light, that command is there in a sense to sort of stop us from doing that and sort of encourage us to think of God. If we ever have any thoughts of God in our head that he's spiritual to lead us away or to, to lead us away from thinking of him as having any sort of physical form. Yes. Kind of makes sense with the rest of the commandments too. All ten commandments have we can physically break them, but we can also break all of them in our minds as well. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Like the one for murder, so we can physically murder someone and transgress the law. But Jesus also teaches us that we can mentally murder someone and transgress the law. Yeah, yeah, and and you can just go down the list. Right. You cannot yeah, honor your father and mother. You can do everything your mother and father say, but in your mind, if you just like are grinding your teeth at them and you basically hate your parents, you're breaking that commandment, even if you did everything they told you to. Um, and yeah, it's the same thing with the images. I think that's a good, it's a good comparison. Um, so I'm in favor of that part of the command. I think that that is a good summary of what God's saying because it would be odd, right, if God says, don't make a physical image of me. There's nothing you can compare me to. Do it in your minds as much as you want, <laughs> but not physically. That seems that's a very externalized kind of a commandment. So it just makes sense that this is one that we're supposed to keep in our whole person, not just in our actions. Um, Adam, yeah. If you help me with this, mm-hmm. when we read the book of Revelation, there are a lot of images that are pictured. What mm-hmm. going on in heaven, <clears throat> like the Lamb coming all of a sudden into the scene, and yeah. like he was slain and all this thing. Previous to that, he's standing above everybody. His eyes are gleaming. His hair is white. How do we get around those? So, John calls the book of Revelation a vision. So he's given a vision, and it's not a an image of physical events. Although it looks like a physical event to him, it's meant to symbolize all these things that he's seeing. And so, yeah, when he sees the Lamb in the center of heaven. What he's being depicted, what's being depicted for him, is Jesus is at the center of heaven and the whole entire kingdom. Um, but what he's, but what he's not being told is, uh, you should actually make this image, or something like that. But also symbolic images, I think people differ on that. So symbolic images, you may have some some divergence there as far as that sort of thing goes. And you I have somebody seated on the throne where you can imagine that somebody. Yeah, and I think you could. I think it would be legitimate for you to imagine this one seated on the throne. Uh, but what you wouldn't do is <laughs> say this is what God looks like. Whatever I'm picturing in my head, this is not God. Yeah. Uh, I'm picturing a man seated on a throne who's meant I'm to represent God. Yeah, yeah, you're just trying to trip me up and make things difficult, I know. <laughs> no, it's good. That we have to think about that, though. Uh, anytime you read in the Bible about God having a physical form, like in Jesus, and we'll talk about Jesus in just a moment. It gets more complicated. Yeah, that's it. Uh, when I was a little boy, when I was six or seven years old, uh, I went to uh, a Baptist church, and they had a Bible, and there's a picture of Jesus. And some reason or another, that sticks in my mind, and every time I see a rainbow, I think about that picture. It, it just comes just like that. Yeah. And, uh, I, I don't know. It's just a strange thing. I bet you wish you could kick it sometimes. I, I, I just <laughs> I don't worship that picture, but I, it comes in my brain. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to. Lo- it's hard to lose images once they once they show up. That is a fact. Um, I'll give you one more thing about the the mental images. This is from Abrockel. Um, again, he's a Puritan writer who lived in uh, uh, the Netherlands. But this is what he says. He says, God reveals himself to the soul of men as a spirit, doing so in a manner much more devoid of the physical than can be expressed. When the natural man insists and initially thinks upon God, however, he spoils this initial reflection upon God and changes that which is spiritual into something physical. One will either seek to maintain this physical representation of God, finding delight in creating various representations of God in the mind, or it will be contrary to the will of the person engaged in thought who wishes to have spiritual thoughts of God but cannot do so. 
So what he's actually saying is when we see images of God, it's hard to shake them. Basically, kind of like what you said, you know, it's kind of hard to not think about that picture of Jesus that you saw all those years ago. Um, Even if we want to think of God spiritually, anytime someone depicts it for us physically, it sort of becomes becomes very hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube, if I could put it that way. So I, I do think the catechism's right. I think we should strive not to think of God in any sort of physical way. Whenever in our minds we see ourselves going to a physical thing to think of God, we should say, you know, whatever, whatever you're picturing now, you should steer away from that. Remember that God is a spirit, doesn't have a body. It cannot be physically seen. But that leads us to the one that might be the most controversial. Um, that is making images of God, including the God-man. So if you look in there, it says that not only can we not make images of God, but we can't make images of any of the three persons of the Trinity. Um, I think the idea of not making an image of the Father is fine to most people. No one's going to have an issue with that. Uh, I say no one. Uh, actually, you know, I'm thinking right now, and I wish I couldn't, but uh, if you've ever seen Michelangelo's picture of the creation of Adam, you just picture that bearded, don't do it. <laughs> see it's so hard once you've seen the creation of adam you can't unsee the creation of adam but the way that they depict god in that is so far away he basically makes him look like zeus he basically depicts him like a grandfather like zeus but very muscular so good for him you know even though he's he's years on um i don't think people have a problem with that i don't think people have a problem with the idea of hey we're not supposed to depict the holy spirit because we know the spirit doesn't have a body so the Father and the Spirit, I think we're, we're fine with that. But it's, it's this idea of making images of the Son. This is the one that it just, it's just such a problem. Because the reality is God did enter into the physical world. He really did become one of us. He really did take on a human body. He really did have arms and legs and feet and a stomach and a face and some kind of hair. Uh, there was... He, he really did exist among us. And we also know that he's still a man. Jesus is still physical somewhere in the universe. I think Derek Thomas one time said, who knows where his body is. Maybe his body is tucked into some other dimension or something like that. And we will see him again when God's ready to, to reveal him to us. Um, which I thought, that's a fine way of doing it. I mean, I like sci-fi as much as the next man. Whatever sort of explanation there is. But Jesus does have a physical body. At the right hand of God? Yeah. There we go. We can at least acknowledge that. But I don't know where that physically is. <laughs> don't do it. Don't draw me any pictures of it. Um, but he's still a man. He's still out there. He's in physical space and time. And so because Jesus really was a man and did, is a man and did physically live here among us, Um, Some people say that making images of the Son then is acceptable because God did it first. He he made the Son physical, and so we can do that now. We can make the Son physical as well. Um, It seems like among people who say making images of Jesus are okay, especially, I'm going to just use a loose term, reformed types. Um, There's two types. Um... Some actually think it's okay to make images of Jesus and even have G- images of Jesus in church, which I, I very, very, very strongly disagree with. But um, I have to mention this just because he's so prominent, uh, R.C. Sproul. I love R.C. Sproul. I wouldn't be a pastor if it wasn't for R.C. Sproul. Uh, on two occasions, we went to his church in Sanford, Florida, Uh, at St. Andrew's Chapel. And when you go into the narthex of St. Andrew's Chapel, if you look around on every wall, there is there are just a series of paintings. And what do they depict? They depict the life of Jesus. And it's almost impossible to unsee them. Once you see them, you've seen them and you can't unsee them. Uh, and I've, you know, I've gone to services there. I think it's just undeniable that this gorgeous sanctuary does include a series of pictures that depict Jesus. And those who argue for images of Jesus in church say that they're only doing what God did first. God himself uh, made himself an image. He came into real space. He came into real time. And so now we have the right to make images because he did it first. And, and I've also heard the argument made, and this is from R.C. Sproul. I've actually heard Sproul make the argument that they're not actually making images of God. 
So when you go into that narthex, according to Sproul, you're not seeing images of God around the sanctuary, you're around the narthex. You're seeing images of the human nature of Jesus. This is a direct quote. He says, Scripture allows for images that depict the humanity of Jesus. And so that's what he would say. He would say, you're not seeing the divinity of Jesus when you look at those pictures. You're only seeing a depiction of the humanity of Jesus. And uh, I want to be careful how I respond for two reasons. One is, Sproul is my father in the faith. Uh, Anytime that you disagree with a father in the faith, you just sort of need to be really hesitant to do it. (laughs) And be really slow to do it as well. Um, But the second reason is because it involves going into our doctrine of Christ. It involves talking about the nature of Jesus and whether it's possible to depict the person of Jesus without depicting the divinity of Jesus. Um, partly, I'm glad he says what he says. Scripture allows us to, to depict the humanity of Jesus because if he's mistaken about that, then I think he's conceding the fact that we shouldn't have images of Jesus because he's saying if it is an image of God, then it's not appropriate and it's, it's un, unacceptable. Um, and by the way, he is already disagreeing with the larger catechism here. I mean, he's already out of step with our catechism when it comes to this. Um, so that's not up for debate what Presbyterianism says we should be doing on this point. But the question is, is he right? Orthodox Christianity teaches this. I didn't even end up keeping the running. <laughs> I'm just going to remove that since I didn't keep up. Um, Orthodox Christianity teaches that Jesus has one person and two natures. Now, what are the two natures that Jesus has? He's got a human nature. He's got a divine nature. There was a heresy called Nestorianism. Uh, I believe it was in the 400s, but uh, don't hold me to that. I'm going off notes at that point. Uh, And the Nestorians taught that Jesus was two persons. And one, uh, one, uh, a human person and a divine, uh, and a divine person. And same, same as above here. And so what, what they said was, they said, uh, um, this is how we're able to depict an image of Jesus. Because when you look at an image of somebody, you're never looking at a nature. Natures don't do anything. Natures don't act. Natures don't uh, speak. Natures don't uh, teach. Natures don't die for your sins. Persons die for your sins. People die for your sins. And so I believe that the view that you can look at an image and you're only seeing a human nature assumes this Nestorian view right here. I think that if you have a Nestorian understanding of the person of Jesus and the person of, of the two persons, right? And they think that there's two persons. That's, that's why you can see an image and it's only a human nature. But if orthodoxy is correct, that he is one person with two natures, that anytime you look at an image of Jesus, what are you seeing? You're seeing the human nature and you're also seeing a person with what nature? A divine nature. No matter what. So when you look at an image of Jesus, if you are looking at Jesus and Orthodox Christianity is right about this, there is no seeing a picture of Jesus without seeing an image of God. So you can't separate him from who he is. You can't separate him from his divinity. Um, We can't break him down that way. And so that's sort of my criticism of this idea that those images around the walls are just of Jesus' human nature. No, they're not. They are images of a person who is, who is divine. Yeah. I want to ask how, how then do we understand the passages where Jesus spoke uh, as, as a human without divine knowledge, such as I don't know the day. Oh. I don't know the day of the, of the resurrection. So the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus uh, is, well, <laughs> boy, we are about to get really deep, but here we go. Uh, the, person of, the person of Jesus is fully human. He is fully divine, but he operates by the Holy Spirit, not by his divine nature. So he, de- he always had recourse to his divine nature. He could always uh, use his divine nature to do anything, to gain anything that he wanted. He says, I could call down a legion of angels and they could come. 
And yet what Philippians says is that he set those prerogatives aside. He set those rights and privileges aside. And he lived by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like you and me. So he did miracles. He doesn't do his first miracle until what? Until the Holy Spirit descends upon him at his baptism. Even though he could have done these things in his divine nature, instead he does all these miracles through the Holy Spirit. By the way, that, uh, I think I, we might have talked about this already. I think we touched on this. Um, it felt scandalous at the time. It's, it's a, a good book to look at if you really want to get deep into it. Donald McLeod has a book called The Person of Christ, and he, he gets into how Jesus was able to do miracles and know what he knew. And he, his, his, he is uh, very consistent that the entire testimony of church history has been that he was able to do these miracles because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He could have done them through his, through his divine nature, but then he would have been not setting aside his prerogatives and his rights and his privileges. But he didn't know the date or the time that they were asking about. That's right. So the Holy Spirit didn't reveal it to him. Yeah. So that explains how he can not know some things, and he can know some things. In his divine nature, he knows all these things, but in his human nature, he's, he does not. Because he didn't, the Spirit didn't reveal it to him. He chose to not cross him. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. He's in, he's in full self-control of his own knowledge. Yeah. I think I thought I was wrong, but I was right one time. <laughs> oh, maybe, I don't know. Um, so anyway, that we're getting deep into Christology when we do that. Uh, I don't know any other way to sort of level that criticism except to do that. I do not believe R.C. Sproul is an historian. I do not believe he is a, her- a heretic. Let me just be very clear. But I believe that, that, that to make that defense, he has to borrow a perspective that uses a, that uses a heretical understanding of the person and nature of Jesus. I think he does it self-consciously. I think, or not self-consciously. I think, it's, I think it's an accident. But it's an accident of the argument that has to be made if you want to uh, believe that pictures of Jesus are acceptable. Um, and that was condemned, condemned as a heresy. It was condemned as a heresy at a church council. I'm not really going to spend more time on that. Um, but when you look at Jesus, you're looking at a person with two natures, always. He's always a person with two natures. And so that includes pictures. If you look at a picture of Jesus, you're looking at what is necessarily an image of God because you're seeing a person with a divine nature. Um, any image of Jesus, uh, eh, I already said this, I'm going to skip past this. Um, <clears throat> Jesus, to see Jesus is to see God. What does he say? He says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Um, Jesus doesn't say, you're just seeing a human. He says, to see me, you're to see God, is what he says. So, um, uh, now some are okay with making images of God for artistic purposes. So that was me basically talking about images in church. But what about images not even in church? What about images that are, they belong in a museum? It belongs in a museum. That's my Indiana Jones. Nobody got it. Um, <laughs> uh, so this is an image of Jesus. This belongs in a museum. Um, how can, uh, how should we think about that? You know, one of the books that we're actually using for our Ten Commandments class, the author actually takes a position that if you've got Rembrandt's picture that he makes of Jesus, that's okay as long as you keep it in a museum and keep it away from a church. I gotta, I gotta stop. Um, so um, what I would say is, hold on. Sorry, I got lost. <laughs> I got lost in my notes. Um, my issue with this distinction, with this idea of making images of Jesus, but only keeping them away from worship is this. How do you see the one you love and not love him? How do you set your eyes on the Savior, the one who died for your sins, and just look at him as if he's uh, a fact of knowledge or a scientific piece of information? How do you, the, I would suggest this, the only person who can see an image of Jesus and not worship and not love the one that you see is somebody who's not converted. Because if you're converted, if you've been rescued, if Jesus has saved you, if he's borne your sins, then when you set your eyes on him, how can you not glorify him and worship him and raise him up in your heart? And, and I would say the same thing goes for um, uh, 
well, actually, they have a really something a little fantastic quote that Neil Neil Stewart made. So Neil Stewart used to be the pastor at Second Presbyterian Church in Yazoo City, and then he went to pastor in Savannah, and now I can't remember where he's at. But um, he's a he's a I, I love Neil Stewart, and one of the things he says is he says the function of an image is to draw your mind to the subject behind the image. Because Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, any thought that gets drawn in his direction must be worshipful. It must be because the very nature of Jesus' glory is that he became a man, is that he became one of us, that he walked among us, that he looked like one of us. And the idea that we should see him and not immediately worship is deeply strange. The idea that we could see Rembrandt's picture of Jesus and not feel even a twinge of worship it either assumes that we can be indifferent about Jesus or it assumes that this isn't Jesus at all. Um, and so we should think to ourselves, that's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God incarnate every time we see an, an image. So, so I'm just not friendly to the idea that images of Christ can be made for any reason, that they serve any useful or helpful function whatsoever. Um, the closest I've ever seen to useful is probably uh, the Jesus video. Um, when I was a kid, that was how I first saw the whole story of Jesus. Because in Sunday school, they just kind of show you the highlights from the life of Jesus. And I felt like the Jesus movie, I saw that when I was a kid. I really benefited from that. But I have to be honest, for the rest of my life up until uh, recently, I just, in my brain, if I ever try to picture Jesus, I picture white guy Jesus, you know? I picture a white guy with long brown hair, very flowing, effeminate, handsome just a little bit, you know, but not too much, uh, you know, and you just sort of get this image in your head and you just can't get that image out of your head anymore. It's really difficult to do. And yet Jesus was probably a brown-skinned Middle Easterner with brown curly hair. He was probably short. If you stood in front of him, he might even be shorter than you. Um, the paintings that do depict Jesus probably don't even, don't even look like they depict a Palestinian Jew from the first century. Um, just all together, they get Jesus wrong physically, they get Jesus wrong spiritually, uh, and there's just really no help to be found in images. So, so my own view, and I think the image of our, I don't, I don't think, the Im- and the view of our church, the Presbyterian Church in America, is we should never make images of God uh, regardless of which person of the Trinity is. Um, I have some books in my library. They have images of Jesus on the cover. If you ever go in there and you ever want to borrow one, you're certainly welcome to, but the cover's ruined because I have this like weird tape that I put over it because I don't want to look at these images of Jesus. Um, I remember there are a lot of Christians that are really sensitive to images of Christ too, even if you've never heard of that before. I remember one time going into a church and... There was a kid who was visiting with his family. They were visiting. I think it was in Wichita. And I think that he had gone to... No, it wasn't in Wichita. But anyway, he'd gone to the Sunday school classroom. This little kid came running out. He goes, images of God, images of God. And so he'd gone into the Sunday school class and he got him freaked out because his parents had taught him, you're not supposed to look at images of Jesus and you're not supposed to to have them. So the reality is that really is the confessional Presbyterian teaching. Yes? Does that include baby Jesus and any? It would, yeah. She asked if that includes beautiful baby Jesus in the nativity. Yeah, I mean it would, yeah. But you know, I, this is this is this is how I this is how I deal with this. Uh, I realize that a lot of Christians have never even heard that images of Jesus aren't acceptable. There are there are people who they probably think that's like a Jehovah's Witness thing or something like that. You guys are just like folks that don't celebrate birthdays, you know. And so you kind of have to make the case, hey, look, actually, this is totally normal. This is totally normal, biblical, Presbyterian. Uh, It's not strange. Um, But, you know, I tend to keep quiet when I I see images. Uh, Unless I'm at home and we're talking about it as a family, you know, or something like that. Um, But I guess there's... What's that? But... um, Anyway, I know we have to wrap up. I know we have to conclude, uh, and I've already gone a little bit too long. But um, I would just conclude with a couple things, a couple thoughts just to close on. One is this. um, Even if you disagree, keep in mind, uh, this is our church's official teaching. It's been around for 250 years, um, at least. At least that's how long our confession is, how old our confession is. The second thing I would say is this. um, If you display images of Jesus, keep in mind uh, that you might be troubling the consciences of other Christians. 
Uh, um, <clears throat> so I would say consider putting them away. Consider it. Um, third, I would say this, let's love one another and let's resist judging each other. Um, I try to take a very charitable view whenever I see anybody use images of Jesus. I assume, A, they don't know this is an issue. Second, I assume they don't know it's an issue for me. Uh, third, I assume they probably haven't even heard that images of Jesus are an image of God. They probably have never even heard that that might be unacceptable because it's so much in the culture. It's so much in the air. Uh, we just think, well, we've got to have images of Jesus. Well, for a long time we didn't. The first image in church history that we still have is actually a blasphemous image of Jesus, of uh, Jesus on a cross with a donkey's head. And it was graffiti written on the wall that said, uh, this man worships his God. And it was making fun of a Christian. So somebody made an image of Jesus, and the first image of Jesus that we have was a blasphemous one. So anyway, that's my whirlwind tour of the second commandment. That's my whirlwind tour of the negative side of the second commandment. I'm really looking forward to turning the third over to Robert next week. Right? You're next week? Well, we'll look at this. It's you. It's Willie Ray. Willie Ray's next week. Yeah. Willie Ray's going to do something. He's going to give us a break from the commandments for a while. So Willie Ray's going to teach, and I think he's going to come step in every now and then and just give everyone a break from what we're doing. So... I would ask if there are questions or comments, but we're out of time. But you can talk to me afterwards, and you can feel hit, you know, throw all the tough questions at me you want. Um, hopefully, I've explained the Presbyterian view well. I, I, I know I could be more thorough, but I don't want to be overbearing. So uh, we'll just let it stop there, and let's pray. Lord, your word is perfect and without flaw. Uh, when we struggle to understand what the scriptures say, the problem is with us and it's with our own sinful hearts. It's not with you and it's not with your word. So we ask you to, to help us to read carefully and to love generously. Help us to worship you according to your commands and your dictates, but help us not to be rude or overbearing if we find ourselves in disagreement over what we see around us. But in all things, Lord, give us charitable hearts and a love of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.